1: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
4: Travelling 17,000 kilometres and 8,000 days into the past.
5: We've got lots of things that we can do in London and in the UK that we've had lots of people asking us about.
4: Australia's most baffling missing person case is entrancing listeners around the world and garnering new attention.
1: Missing mum mystery, the Queensland teacher who disappeared the trace.
4: For the first time in her life, Sally Layden is travelling to the United Kingdom, echoing the trip her mother Marion took 22 years ago.
5: She always liked to speak quite proper and quite well and she felt that people knew she was Australian yeah. because of our yeah. kind of accent. Yeah.
4: Joined by one of the millions of listeners to The Lady Vanishes podcast. And did you expect to be in a car with Sally? Retrasing her <laughs> up steps? Absolutely,
6: absolutely no way, no. I would never have dreamt in a million years that we'd be doing
4: this. The reason Sally is making this journey now is this key piece of evidence. It's a personal advertisement placed in a French-language Australian newspaper in 1994. It reads... Tall, 47-year-old single man with brown hair. A non-smoker who is cultured, intelligent and a polyglot. Someone who can speak a number of languages. He owns multiple properties or businesses and is highly motivated. And he's looking for an unattached lady with a view for a permanent relationship or marriage. The letters BCBG in the ad stand for Bon Chic, Bon Genre, which translates as good style, good class. At Sydney Airport, waiting to board a flight to the UK, Sally tells seven senior cameraman Paul Walker about the online sleuth who found the ad, one of many helping our team.
5: Um, We've got a few side sleuths, like uh, Joni, who's become like my sidekick. She's been helping us amazingly and some of the stuff we found out is insane, like it's the best lead we've had.
4: More on that ad later. Our first stop is a brief layover at Singapore's Changi Airport.
5: This this kind of is weird for me because I always think to myself, for somebody who is going to vanish and never see me ever again, that's a lot of effort to pick out a card that has Sally's craft on it, stick the little sticker on the back to say, oh, you know, thinking of you. And this is my other my other beef with it. Like here's another postcard that she sent to her her aunts and they all loved cats. So she went to the cat shop in Brighton in Sussex, got the postcard and sent them the postcard. So if you were gonna vanish, wouldn't you just go to the local news agents and pick out a few little touristy postcards and send them? Yeah right. As opposed to just going to the effort of actually going yep that's specific and then London Bridge.
4: London Bridge. Finally, we arrive in England and head straight to one of the places we know Marion visited in the days before she vanished. New South Wales Police have always maintained they believe Marion planned all of this, telling Sally and her relatives she was coming to Europe to go on the Orient Express. First stop, Tunbridge Wells, a small town about 1 hour and 15 minutes south of London. From here she called Sally and sent postcards. She may have walked along this avenue or even over this precise spot. That's where Christina comes in. She's a local who's been listening to our podcast. She's agreed to help Sally retrace Marion's steps here and nearby in the days leading up to the point where she vanished. Christina Panter is part of the online army of listeners to The Lady Vanishes who feel compelled to help Sally with research, tips, checks and even personal visits. When did you start listening to The Lady Vanishes? How did you come across it?
6: Well, I've been listening since the beginning because I was already in touch with Sunny mm-hmm. via the Facebook group. Yep. That's how we initially had contact. Um, so I've been listening from
5: the very first episode. Hello. Hi.
7: How are you going? So lovely to Yay. meet you. you.
5: How nice are you? to meet you. Thank you so much. Oh,
3: this is so strange. It's <laughs>
5: <That's laughs> a bit weird, isn't it? I know,
3: you've come all this way. I know. Why is this I kind of see? going Oh anyway. my gosh,
5: like I feel like must be nervous too like lies in my stomach. She's just you know really just offering to help me and here she is on in my
7: podcast and getting filmed. It's quite surreal how it's all happened, but here
4: we are. Several listeners have suggested Marion may have been depressed and possibly even harmed herself while here. A theory Sally rejects.
5: And she always bounced back quite strong. She was always you know I never saw her in a corner crying or even upset for that matter. Like I never really even uh, remember her being a sad person except in that last few months when I was going over there and she was telling me about all this crap that was going on at TSS.
4: Due to the passage of time we're not able to confirm with any of the hotels where Marion may have stayed. So it's off to the next place she visited, nearby Tonbridge Castle, where Marion took a leaflet she then sent to Sally.
5: But
3: the strange
5: groups, thing but. is that she sent you the leaflet. Yeah. You know, I know, well, she and that's what I mean. So she sent me yeah. that and she sent me the, um, the wells. So what is that called? Day at the, the Wells. Day so at that, right, so That's
7: closed yeah.
4: now. Incredibly, the staff at the castle were all working here when Marion visited in 1997. They don't remember her, but promised to check with other staff who might. <laughs> yeah, there's a Tommy's Facebook
5: group. <laughs> She's amazing. That's,
3: that's fine. There's a Tommy's Facebook group, and that's usually quite good, and that's usually quite good for people you know, get information about what's happening in Tunbridge and things like that.
4: Sally will post a new photo to that page, an aged progression image produced by another devoted listener that Sally thinks accurately shows how her mother might look today at the age of 73. We're soon back on the road and arrive at the stunning hamlet of Alfriston, where Sally has one of her most emotional experiences on this journey. Marion was in this shop called Sally's Gifts in 1997, The owner happens to arrive on this public holiday, just as we do, and lets us in. What
6: person who used um, to own Sally is still alive? Yeah, her name's Carol. Carol right.
7: That's right.
6: Yeah. So
7: I've written her a letter, and I've
5: asked a lady from the 8th period to get the letter to her. I don't know if she's received it yet. It's actually a nice, comforting feeling for me. I felt very much... Like mum was around, if that makes any sense. Like I just felt like she, everything that was in there was her taste, and she loved fabrics and wallpaper, and um, very much, you know, very much up her alley. So it was kind of nice to be in there, to be honest, to know that she'd stepped there, and that was probably, you know, what could have been her last and that steps, for all we know. I don't, I don't know, but it sounds a bit morbid to say that, but you don't know. So, but I know for fact she was there, so it was. It was kind of nice being in there, it's cold out here, but it was nice being in there, nice and warm, and had a good
4: feeling about it. Right next to us is the town post box, possibly the very one Marion used to send the postcard. Sally next makes a quick detour to meet with the police at Kent in Sussex. They can't take an official report, but her personal visit is worth the trip.
5: No surprise, they can't do anything unless Australian police um, contact them directly and ask for their help. Mm-hmm. Um, I told him the story, he, he's, he's a, he said I don't like to make judgement on anything but he said if it was us here in, in Kent we would do everything in our power to help people.
4: They cannot take Sally's DNA without a request from New South Wales Police. We've asked them to make that approach and we're waiting for their response. Finally, we arrive in the seaside party town of Brighton, home to the famous pier, and once the location of an unusual store, named The Cat Shop.
5: It's kind of weird to think that she was walking along
4: here, hey? Back to the ad in that French-Australian newspaper, and we've located a man with the same name, who is the same age. He's in Luxembourg, the country Marion claimed she was living in, on a passenger card when she returned to Australia in 1997 under her new name, Florabella Ramakel, Could this man know something about what happened to her? To find out what happens, listen to The Lady Vanishes, available at 7news.com.au and on all platforms. Brian Seymour, 7 News.
7: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, I'm not done with Marion's case just yet. In fact, I'm only just getting started. Now, again, I recommend you listen to the Lady Vanishes podcast to understand the incredible journey that Sally has been on. It's really not my intention to replicate the Lady Vanishes podcast, but it is my intention to be additive and make sense of such a robust case file and investigation and lend my expert analyses to move the case forward and unravel what happened to Marion Barter. And make no mistake, this is a complicated and complex case and it takes a lot of time and energy and thought Thoughts which I've shared a number of times already on The Lady Vanishes podcast, but now much more is known. I'm reviewing my analyses and my thoughts, and I'm sharing them with Sally and with you, lovely lot. So I just want to say a huge thank you to all of you, all my lovely listeners who are joining us on this journey In this episode, I'm once again joined by Sally, who will share key information about retracing her mother's footsteps to the UK and Luxembourg. Now, of course, we have to give you the background too, so that it makes sense to all my new listeners to this case, knowing that many of you are in the UK and that you may well have key information or knowledge about Marion's time there. Sally also started the Facebook page Missing Person Marion Barter in 2013, which is dedicated to finding her mum Marion and finding answers as to what happened to her. She's been searching for Marion for 26 years. And as you heard in the clip at the top of the episode, that search took Sally to Tunbridge Wells and Brighton in the UK. Now, the UK connection is fascinating to me and the fact that Marion's first stop was Tunbridge Wells. That piqued my interest straight away. You see, for me, it's such an odd place to randomly pick. I mean, Royal Tunbridge Wells is stunning. I've been there numerous times, namely regarding cases that I've worked, and one in particular that changed me and the course of my career. Claire Bennell who was stalked and shot dead in Harvey Nichols in Knightsbridge in September 2005. While Claire's case resonated with me so deeply, I met her mother and we went on to change the law together. And I'm talking about the law on stalking. Well, Claire and Tricia, her mum, they were from Tunbridge Wells. It always stood out to me that Tricia, Claire's heartbroken mother, once said, I've read about murders of women like this in the newspapers, Laura but I never thought it would happen to someone like me from Tunbridge Wells. You see, Royal Tunbridge Wells is an incredibly beautiful part of the world. And yes, it is Royal Tunbridge Wells, as it has attracted royal families for centuries. And there's the famous walkway, the Pantals. You're going to hear me circle back to Tunbridge Wells, as I'm so curious about why this would be Marion's first stop on her dream trip, Like, why leave London immediately and go there? That stands out to me. I did ask Sally about it, and she told me Marion had never mentioned Tunbridge Wells before. Yet curiously, Marion sent her a brochure of a day at the Wells to Sally. That intrigues me. It's almost like Marion was leaving a trail, just in case. Also, Marion told Sally that she was heading north to Tunbridge Wells, Well, Tunbridge Wells is actually south of London, and it's also not that far from Gatwick and the ferry ports to France and Europe, and to Luxembourg. Luxembourg is a small European country surrounded by Belgium, France and Germany. Luxembourg comes up a lot in this case. Why didn't Marion know that Royal Tunbridge Wells was south of London? It strikes me as odd that for someone who meticulously planned this trip of a lifetime, that she didn't know that. And it begs the question... Was someone else calling the shots of the places to visit on this trip? That's what I asked Sally. And so now we're going to dive back into the interview and you can hear Sally's answer for yourself.
5: I just always thought that my mum wouldn't be able to do the things that has happened and that I know she did on her own. I just didn't feel that she was... She's not very street smart, I've always said that, and she's not very savvy with um, how she operated. And I, I don't think that the things that I now know and remembering too, I didn't know a lot of these things for a very long time. So it's been a very long, arduous process for me. I was living with... You know, the fact that Chris and I had got married, we built another house, we had three children. So life was very busy. And I on the side I had my grandfather passed away. So my mum's dad from cancer. I had a lot going on. Owen's oh, suicide. In that first ten years of mum missing, there was a massive, massive, massive amount of energy and stress and oh, I don't even know the right word for it, but I was just living. I was just trying to get through the process and trying to live thinking that my mum didn't want me in her life. And, you know, I've read statements from police officers who are high up in the ranks of missing persons units saying that it seems Sally is seeking a scapegoat for this situation. I have read things like that and that they said, oh, I believe her mother was seen last month. Not true. Not fact. Not fact. And, and proven to be the case, and they are very hurtful things for me to see as a person who is trying to find my her mum. I, I just, I find it amazing to think that people are so quick to push it to the side and and just want me to go away. Is mainly the vibe I get from most encounters. But if we go all the way back, the first ten years I spent growing my family and trying to survive the best I could. I got to mum's 10th anniversary and I just made a decision that I wasn't getting any help from New South Wales Police. I had no contact with them anymore. I had no no idea who was on the case or what was happening. All that time, I believed my mum was on the missing persons register. I contacted the AFP, which is the Australian Federal Police here in Australia, and I spoke to a lovely woman named Rebecca Cotts. And we spoke for hours. I told her my story she was just blown away by what what I had experienced and she asked if she could come up and meet with me so she flew up to Queensland and took me out for lunch and she asked me to be the face of missing persons that year so I could tell my story she said it'll be a great way for you to get your mum's story out in the media you know surely someone knows something and anyway so we went through that whole process I was in my final trimester of my son and I had to pull myself all the way back through everything again and it was very stressful. I was writing speeches and I was told that, you know, we would be going from one state to another to go on national television for this event. I was in the process of storing my breast milk so I could feed him while I was on TV at 6am in the morning and all this sort of jazz. And he was literally, I think he was five weeks old at the time Two days before we were supposed to fly to Canberra for the launch, they pulled me from being the face of missing persons. And when I quizzed them on it, I said, why did you do that? And they said, oh, it's due to sensitivity of the case. What I've since found out through the inquest process was that in actual fact, they didn't have my mum listed as a missing person. So therefore, I could not be the face of missing persons if my mum wasn't actually missing to them.
7: Unbelievable.
5: I can't even put into words how bad that was. That was birth shattering. And so anyway, mum was very quickly put back on the missing persons list in New South Wales. And it's only the register, it's not the national register. And so this was a journey for me of just chipping away. It sort of started there again. And then I started chipping away again. Um, Rebecca was a great person who wanted to help me and helped me. She sadly passed away from cancer. 18 months ago. and But she was a a great person that I could talk to anytime and always showed me really great support and care. And we've just gone through the the motions. I then had a new detective put on the case and he contacted me and hence why I didn't do a police report for 13 years because it was only when he came on that he said, we need to get a report from you. So that transpired and I started working with him. He started doing digging. He's the one that noted that there had been a name change on mum's passport to Flora, Bella, Natalia, Marion, ramikel And that started a whole other ball rolling. Um, but they came back to me and said, there's no evidence of any ramikel here in Australia. And so I sort of found myself, he kept telling me his hands were tied, there was nothing more he could do, and he essentially closed the case in 2011. They actually noted On her file that she had been located. And this was extremely upsetting for me. And when I went back to him and said, It says on that document you just sent me that she was located. And we're probably talking, I think they said this was happening in 2011. And I think this is around 2016 to five years later. And I said, What do you mean? And he came back and said to me initially, Oh, I've just spoken to them. And they said it's a typo. Oh, gosh. And I was like, what? What do you mean? And then he rang. He said, I'm going to get some more clarity. I'll come back to you. He then rang me back and said, I've spoken to them and they've pretty much said that they have to mark her as located because there's only a box for located or missing. And because we deem with the information that we have that she sold her house, she quit her job, she went overseas and changed her name, that we deem that she is missing on her own account. So therefore, she's located. she's not missing. So two and two equals
7: five and the box doesn't exist, which is just a ludicrous reason.
5: No box for that situation. So I found myself once again, just trying to come up with ideas. I was like, okay, well, can we get her incoming passenger list? of who was on the plane, on the same plane as she flew in on and versus the flight she was leaving Australia on. Can we see those lists and see if there's a match? Is that the same person on both flights? Because they could be a person of interest who might know what's happened to my mum. And it was all those things that I was just trying to, like, can we get bank records? I couldn't access any of it through freedom of information because I'm not privy to my mum's privacy, which I find absolutely crazy in Australia as well, that even after so long, you still can't access as the next 10. I still can't access all my mum's files, her medical records, anything because of her privacy, even though no one can find her and no one knows where she is. So that's been a massive drama as well. He told me that her Medicare card had been used in Grafton on the 13th of August, 1997. We didn't really talk about the last time I spoke to mum, but she literally flew back into Australia the following day after a phone call from her. And there's a track of events and a timeline that myself and Joni, who's one of my super sleuths, who we should talk about a little bit later, we put together this amazing timeline. And it's very scary when you sit down and look at the timeline with what we know now. But we went through this process of constantly doing this and that it wasn't until I met Alison Sandy, who works for Channel 7, which is a news network here in Australia. And um, I remember meeting her in the October of 2018 and I rocked up to coffee with this blue folder and had all my documents and photos of mum in there. And she just looked at me and said, wow, actually, I don't think this is a one-hour TV special. We probably need to do something more. So that's when the podcast idea was born. And it was probably because... If I go back to, you mentioned Lynette Dawson earlier and the Teacher's Pet podcast that Hedley Thomas did, I had just listened to that. And the similarities were absolutely slapping me in the face. So... It was born the idea that we would make a podcast. I remember Brian Seymour, who's one of our team, he said to me, oh, we'll probably do seven episodes and we're definitely going to find your mum, cell. Like I know we're going to find her. So I had this mix of emotion that all these people still believe that she was alive and well still because that's what the police were believing. And I was in this realm of is she alive and she just doesn't want to know me? What happens if we find her and she rejects me again? Like, how am I going to cope with all those things? Anyway, where I think we're up to episode 48 of the Lady Vanishes podcast now. There's a lot to tell in there. There's a recount of the inquest. We do a recount of the podcast just to make it easier for people who haven't listened to all the episodes and all of the conversations that we've done in there as well. But that opened up so many doors for me because I had all these amazing humans contacting me and sending me messages. And for whatever reason, I decided it was a good idea to maybe make a group. I did that and I I don't know how or the process of what I was thinking, but that's turned out to be quite an amazing part of this journey for me because those people are now like my family and we talk every day and we have a group chat. We've even joined groups now. So we're friends and groups with Theo Hayes, who's the missing Belgian backpacker who went missing in Byron Bay. And that, I guess the similarities there are my mum was last known to be in Byron Bay. So we've connected with them as well. And I've called that group Strength in Numbers because together we will succeed and, and do more and achieve more. But one of those ladies is Joni Condos, and... She listened to the podcast in May. It was only launched on April 1st, 2019. And in the May, Joni was listening and she's a massive true crime fan. She loves you, Laura. She's been listening to you for years and years and years. And she decided she had a missing person in her family or in her husband's family. And she'd done a lot of research to try and find their missing great-grandmother. In doing that, she actually... Started doing a Trove search under the name of Ramakel because we'd done searches and we couldn't find anybody in Australia with the name Ramakel. It's a very very rare name, and she stumbled across an ad in a newspaper, which was a French speaking newspaper called the La Courier Australien. It's based in Sydney, and it was a man by the name M. F. Ramakel who was forty seven, a polyglot, well spoken, good looking, looking for a partnership potential marriage in a nutshell. And the PO box address was for Lennox Heads. Now Lennox Heads is about a 10 minute drive from Byron Bay, to put it into perspective. And so when I've seen that ad, it was placed in 1994, so three years before my mum went missing. So I couldn't kind of, my head wasn't really adjusting to the idea that my mum had seen the ad and met this man, Ramakel, and that's how it's all transpired. I still couldn't connect the dots, but the spelling was identical. And so we went on this mad search worldwide to find MF Ramakel. We worked out it was Monsieur Fernand Ramakel was the MF, and the only F Ramakel that we could find happened to live, who was 47 in 94, happened to live in Luxembourg. My mum's outgoing passenger card we then had, and she had mentioned that she was moving permanently to Luxembourg. And so you can imagine there was a flurry of, holy, what is this about and what is this going to lead to? So we jumped straight on a plane and we went to Luxembourg and knocked on Mr. Fernand Ramickel's door. And I got quite a cold reception I've since learned that the Belgium and Luxembourgish people do not appreciate people rocking up to their door and asking questions, you should make an appointment before you go, and just the way they they live over there, and it's a very different kosher to what we have here in Australia. But I thought I was polite, I put my hand out, I introduced myself, and he ignored my hand, and that caused another frenzy because Channel 7 were there and they were filming it, and it caused a lot of question, I guess, as to why he acted that way towards me. Turns out that his identity was stolen and the man that stole that identity also had an affair with his ex-wife, Monique Cornelius, who we also knocked on her door and we also spoke to her on the phone when we went there in the May of 2019. Long story short, we've come back and we there was a phone number included in the ad. So we sort of did the whole Luxembourg thing, we came back, we sat on it for a while, trying to work out what the connection potentially would be, not knowing at this point that his identity had been in fact stolen. And we went through the process and we were trying to find who owned the phone number that was in the ad. Now, when you think about it, this we're talking now 2019, And we're trying to roll back to 1997 and find out who actually owned that phone number back then. The police had tried. They failed and said that the phone number didn't exist anymore. We had a gentleman who was listening to the podcast, and this is where the power of the podcast is absolutely poignant. And he trodled himself down to the local library. He lived in Ballina, uh, which is five minutes from Byron Bay, and he found someone who owned the phone number in a, in a phone book, which we don't have anymore. And the man who had that phone number had a business called Ballina Coin Investments. And it was owned and operated by Frederick de Hevederi and Diane de Hevederi, And they both happened to live in Ballina. And that's where... The universe imploded and we are where we are today because Frederick de Hevedere is now known as Rick Blum and he has now been the key focus witness at my mum's inquest.
7: small steps and big steps across the pond of you having to travel to Luxembourg to get that reception that could look like one thing, but actually you then find out that it was a cultural thing in terms of the reception rather than him having anything to do with it. But then to have one of the listeners track down that number, you know, often it is just boots on the ground. You need someone to go and do those things. So that's fantastic that one of the listeners actually took action and went off and checked and comes back with a tangible outcome and something that's actionable. And that connection to Rick Bloom is a very interesting one. And it's always needle in a haystack with cases. But for you to be able to do this on You know, it's not just a cold case, it was really no case, right? It's your mother, but really it wasn't an active investigation at all and you've had to turn over all these stones and the power of the podcast, meaning people can listen all over and take action because someone always knows something, that tiny piece of information that can connect you to a person of interest. Let's call him that for now, a person of interest. How did you feel when the name, when you had a name, how did you feel about that process? And then, you know, that I would imagine comes with lots of feelings and thoughts, but then he gave evidence and testimony at the coronial inquest. So you then learned a lot more information. Can you just talk through that process, Sally?
5: I remember when I first found out that mum had changed her name and I instantly said to the police officer, I don't think she would have done that on her own. I think someone has told her to do that. And then I sort of started thinking my own self back to the man in the car and the timing of that. So for me, I was trying to work out who was the guy in the car and why his mum changed her name. Like, what was the purpose of doing that? Now, she ticked when she left Australia on her trip, she was going for only a year and coming back for my wedding, she ticked that she was divorced but she was moving permanently to Luxembourg. She comes back in five weeks later of her year-long holiday. She was going on the Orient Express. She told us, told me on the phone and told her sisters that she'd postponed her trip on the Orient Express and was going to do it later because she was having a wonderful time, was what we were told. She comes back into Brisbane Airport. She's ticked now that she's married and the tick is particularly large she says that she's coming for eight days to visit family. We can discuss the timeline a bit later if you want, but for me, there was something not right there. Like I, I was trying to process this going, why would she come back? And then all her money starts coming out of her bank account. So if I let's talk about the timeline. It's probably a good time. So mum flies back into Australia, into Brisbane on the 2nd of August. She says she's staying for eight days. That takes us up to the 10th of August. On the 11th of August, Mr Blum told the court in his inquest he bought a new car, which was a second-hand Magna, from a car dealership down the road from where he lives or lived in Wollongbar, which is down near Ballina in northern New South Wales. Two days later, my mum's Medicare card is used in Grafton, which is about an hour's drive south of where Mr Blum lived at the time. Two days after that, my mum's bank account starts being accessed in Byron Bay, and $5,000 is what I was told over the phone from a bank teller when I called. And after mum missed my brother's birthday and said, Something's wrong. My mum is overseas. She's on a holiday, and no one's heard from her. And it's my brother's birthday. Can you please check if she's using her account? And the woman said, I can't tell you anything due to privacy, and then gasped and said, oh, my God, did you say she's overseas? And I said, yes. And she goes, oh, my God, there's money coming out of her account in Byron Bay. So it was enough of a flag for the woman to say to me, she didn't add it up exactly, but we sort of worked out it was around three and a half weeks of $5,000 coming out of mum's bank account. So that's mid-August to around the beginning of September. And then on the 15th of October, $80,000 was electronically transferred from my mum's bank account to another bank account, which I don't know whose account that was or where she was sending it to. But it was noted in the inquest that Mr Blum opened a bank security envelope at the Commonwealth Bank the day before the $80,000 was electronically transferred. Now, just to put it into perspective for everybody, my brother's birthday is the 18th of October. I called him on the day of his birthday to wish him a happy birthday and asked if mum had called him. He said no. I called back the next day, so the 19th of October, and said, did you hear from mum because the UK were a day behind us? And I thought maybe she got caught up and got her dates wrong, and he said no. So I called the bank that night. We had a friend over for dinner, and it was her suggestion, actually, that I call the bank and say you should check if your mum's using her bank account fine. Like if she hasn't heard from them, that's a bit of a concern and it's been about six weeks since you've heard from her. So that's what happened. And if you think about that, the $15,000 was electronically transferred and I called four days later her bank. We went to Byron Bay the next day because that's where they told me the money was coming out of and I walked the streets with her photograph and yet there's nothing on file from the police after I went to the police station to say that they've got the file of where my mum's money was transferred to. I didn't know about the $80,000 at that time. I only learned about that in 2018, so a long time later. But I had the information from the lady on the phone from telebanking telling me that this money was being withdrawn and there's still no bank records or any details of that happening when the bank was literally 100 metres down the road from the police station. And if we knew where that money was going, that would be key to finding out what's happened to my mum. So that's that's kind of where we got to with that side of the fence.
7: But there would still be a record of that, right? So even though it wasn't interrogated. We've tried
5: and they've said, like, we've had the bank managers on the stand at the inquest and they've confirmed that there's no longer any bank records due to the length of time.
7: Right, so things got destroyed or weeded. Mm. Because yeah, of the length or just of time. just lost, which has been another
5: part of my journey is everyone telling me, oh, well, after seven years, we destroy evidence. And after this time and for the, all the big gaps that we've had, because I've been told something and, you know, as a as a person growing up, I was a pretty young 25 year old, I would say. Um, I've had to grow up a lot and learn a lot over the journey. And if I knew what I knew now back then, things would be very different because I would have pushed a lot harder and I probably would have done all the investigating myself to try and get the answers. But I've always been faced with the private this issue.
7: Yeah, so the, but the timeline is still very important. And the fact that this money was taken out, 80,000 on October the 15th, but on October the 14th, Mr. Blum opened this electronic safety envelope account and then closes that account within... 13 days later, I think, yeah. 13 days, yeah, October the 27th. Now, your mum's timeline, and again, I'm always very interested in, in that. She was last heard from on the 15th of August, isn't it? From She'd sent a postcard and that was stamped, I think, the 15th of August. But between the 15th of August and the 18th of October, no one had heard from her. So the last,
5: the detail in the postcard is not quite correct. So what is actually written in the police document or their cops event? on the only first statement that I've seen back in 1997, it says that a family member had received a postcard that was dated the 30th of August. Now, I had never seen that postcard and I always quizzed and said, well, who was it who told you that? Because that's not me. I've handed over my postcards and I can show you what they are and that's not the date that I have. But during the inquest, her sister gave a postcard that was um, stamped, I think it's from Jane Austen. Territory in the UK, and it was stamped the 7th of August, but we're in the process at the moment of, I've had all of the postcards digitally scanned, and Christina, who's one of our super sleuths in the UK, has found a gentleman over there who can actually process the little dots that are on the back of the postcard, which will tell us exactly where it was posted and what time it was processed, because the processing time and the stamp time don't always match. And it could have possibly been that she was, um, we know she stayed at an oust house. And the thought process potentially was that she wasn't in an area local to a post box to be able to post the letter. So therefore there was a delay and it was, we've looked at the timeline and it was actually a weekend as well. So potentially that's why the postcard came back into Australia five days after she arrived back in Australia. But there was a lot of talk about that. And that's important because the police kept saying, oh, well, she deliberately was trying to fool everybody because she'd sent this postcard that stamped 30th of August. I'm still yet to see that postcard. I have not seen that ever. And the only one, as I said, that has come after she's returned is the one to her sister, Lee, which came back in and was stamped on the 7th of August. But And you last spoke to her on the 1st, is that right? Yes, yes, on the 1st of August. And she flew back in on the 2nd of August.
7: So in essence, you can say you last spoke to her, you heard her voice on the phone on August the 1st and your brother's birthday was the 18th of October and there was nothing in terms of any eyes that you would trust and know that your mother was seen between the August the 1st and the 18th of October. No,
5: correct. And mum had, to put that into perspective as well, mum had sent postcards and letters and birthday presents to her sister Deirdre. She'd been very busy while she was over there and a lot of the conversations she had with me was checking things off and making sure she'd packed up some things accidentally that she'd put into um, some storage at Chris's grandparents' house, which were just her school things and a mattress and things like that that she didn't want to put into the shipping container should she move over to the UK. And her interest for me was to get me to get take these things back to TSS and she said to me in a, in her letter she says oh because Luke Glover who was her boss at TSS will be doing a stock take Can you take these kitchen scales back and give them to Jenny because I bought a second set and I can't remember if I actually bought them with petty cash or whether I bought them with my own money because the boys had damaged her set and she went and bought a replacement. And she said, and as he'll be doing a stock take, I don't want to give him any ammunition. And I find that a very interesting thing for her to write. For particularly, and I've said this a million times to authorities, why would she be so worried about me getting a $50 set of kitchen scales back to the school if her intention was to disappear forever and never see us ever again? That was a very big key piece of the information that I couldn't kind of grapple with in my head as to why was she so worried about this? She mentioned it on the phone. She wrote it in her postcard. She told me what a good daughter I was and thank you so much for helping me. They were just comments and and worries for her that if you were traveling back in 97, there was no internet, you know, or you were doing dial-up at best. There was, you know, a handful of people who had mobile phones. There was no Facebook or Snapchat. So there was no way we could find her if she wanted to vanish. And yet they changed, she changed her name via Depol, which has a, a loop back to that. It's not like she did it on the black market or anything like that or a corrupt way. She's done it legally, so we can actually trace that information back. And I feel like she's left us little cookie crumbs by sending all these postcards and all these letters and telling us what she's doing next stop Amsterdam, going on the Orient Express. But when she rang me and she said... I'm going to have a break now. I've been so busy writing postcards and letters to everybody. I just need to have a bit of a holiday. And I said, go and have a holiday. Go and enjoy yourself. We're fine. And then weeks went past and I started to sit there and process what was going on. I went, I actually have no idea where she is. I don't know what hotel she's staying at. I don't know what part of England she's in. And it really hit me like a ton of bricks where I went, I just don't know how to contact her? And then, for me, it was Owen's birthday, I knew that she'd contact him. So I knew I had a date coming up that she wouldn't miss his birthday, come hell no high water, and that would be when we'd speak to her. And she didn't. That was the alarm, that was the icing on the cake for me to say something's wrong.
7: Yes, and I think the the point is well made that she was she left and she still contacted you. There was still, phone calls. There were still postcards. She had put some things into storage and we'll come on to that. She was talking about the future. Even though she changed her name, she was talking about the future. And these are very important points when someone just disappears. So looking at the timeline, we have to think about what was happening in those four months. We know she changed her name, but she was having a relationship with someone. You saw her with a man in a car We know that she did put some things into storage. Rick Bloom talked about that. He talked about her putting those things into storage, but he said that someone came with her to collect those things. And that someone was a man who looked in his 50s and wearing some kind of pilot uniform. But there's no one else who can corroborate that. That's his narrative. And things being put in storage, I think, is very interesting and then disappearing, particularly if it's antique-related coin-related, and the things that are of value, right? It's not just things that are not significant. They are things that are of value. And here's Rick Bloom, who very kindly offered her to put those things in storage. And he gave his own testimony saying, through his own words, that he had a relationship with her four months before she vanished.
5: What did you make of that? I found it very interesting because I didn't know about... storage of furniture at his home. Um, He told the court that he ended the relationship with my mum because he was married and had children, and that was the reason why uh, he ended it. But apparently my mum asked him if she could store her tea chests, her wooden tea chests that she'd packed all her treasures in, in his garage. Now, I mentioned earlier the drive down to Byron back in 1997 was around two 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 and a half hours, so around a five-hour trip to get back to the Gold Coast. And I couldn't kind of understand when Chris's grandparents offered to let her keep her school things in their pool room. They had a like a pool table and a pool out the back and they had this massive spare room. So that's where we put a few boxes up there. The rest of it came to our home. Some of it, as I said, went to Leslie, some went to Owen, I couldn't understand why mum would offer or ask to store her precious treasures with a man that he had just broken up with her because he was married and be two and a half hours away and pay for shipping to get the things down. Like the, I've done my part of investigating into this and a wooden tea chest that's full would require a lift of some description, nearly impossible to pick up, especially with one person as Mr Blum claimed was the pilot who lifted the T chest into the back of the van when they came. The pilot situation is interesting because one of mum's friends had sort of mentioned to me that there was a boy in the class that she had become friendly with, uh, her, his dad. The mother, or the grandmother, I beg your pardon, of the little boy used to come in and help mum in the classroom, so she became quite close. She used to babysit the little boy as well a little bit and um, the dad was a pilot. And we talk about this on the podcast and I guess this is where the downside of talking about things publicly, that people can make things up and people can take information and churn it into a story that suits their narrative by listening to certain things. And I I honestly believe that's probably what has happened here because we do talk about mum having an interest with the pilot and hence Mr Blum then stated that it was my mum and a pilot who came in a pilot's uniform to pick up the goods. I found the pilot, again, needle in the haystack, but putting it out there to the universe. And a friend of mine rang me one day and she said, oh my God, Sal, you're not going to believe who I'm sitting next to, but I'm sitting next to Adam's mum. And she was the ex-wife of this pilot.
7: Okay, I'm jumping in here to wrap this episode. Sally is so articulate and eloquent, isn't she? She's been through so much. And I know that if you're coming to the case new, it's a lot of information to process, and even more if you've listened to The Lady Vanishes. I told you it's an extensive case file and investigation that has been driven by Sally, Alison and Brian from The Lady Vanishes, and key listeners like Joni and the man who helped track the phone number in the December the 10th, 1994 ad placed in Le Courier, Australian. These sleuthers are amazing, quite frankly, doing the job that the police failed to do. Here's a little bit more information about the ad, and you'll hear it in episode 10, Closing In, of The Lady Vanishes, which dropped on the 2nd of June 2019. A few weeks ago, a listener
2: known as Joni sent us a piece of information that had our minds racing. It was a personal ad placed in a newspaper on December the 10th, 1994, for a man seeking a relationship. The newspaper in question was Le Courier Australien, a bilingual French-English publication based in Sydney, providing local and international news. It's perhaps the longest-running foreign-language newspaper in Australia, and while the print version no longer exists, it's still available online. Unsurprisingly, the ad itself was written in French.
0: Monsieur, 47 ans, célibataire. Grand, brun, sobre, non-fumeur.
2: That roughly translates as a tall, 47-year-old single man with brown sobre, hair, non-fumeur. a non-smoker,
0: universitaire,
2: who is cultured, intelligent and can speak a number of languages. He owns multiple properties or businesses and is highly motivated. He is warm and welcoming, but also quite serious. And he's looking for an unattached lady with a view for a permanent relationship or marriage. The letters BC, BG in the ad stand for Bon Chic, Bon Genre, which translates as good style, good class. It's apparently an expression used in France to describe members of the upper class, typically well-educated, well-connected and descended from old money. There are two ways to get in touch. There's a phone number and a post office box for Lennox Head in northern New South Wales. That's not too far from Byron Bay. In fact, it's just a 20-minute drive. And at the bottom of the personal ad, There's also a name.
0: M. F. Ramekel. Or
7: M. F. Ramekel. Wow, that's quite the ad. My analysis of the ad is that it was very carefully crafted. It was specific, calculated, and targeted. It was designed to appeal to a particular type of lady, someone who was lonely. Someone who might have been widowed. Someone who had money and appreciated the finer things in life and who had disposable income to enjoy life at a certain standard. The writer painted himself as very attractive, tall, on the right side of 50. A man who didn't smoke, who was smart and intelligent. A man who spoke many languages, who was well-educated and cultured, who was kind and warm but could also be discerning and serious when required. He sounds like a real catch, doesn't he? I mean, if you were looking for this type of older gentleman companion, almost too good to be true. And in my professional experience, having worked so many of these cases, they always are too good to be true, meaning that they're not true. They're false impressions. In my opinion, the author knew exactly what he was doing, And it's a form of love bombing. It's like grooming the person before you've even met them. He was good with words and could lure a woman in with that alone. Now, Joni, who found this ad, discovered that the words were from Luxembourg rather than France. That's important to remember. Joni's also an experienced social worker and she specialised in family violence. And she was the one who mentioned coercive control and quoted me in her interview with The Lady Vanishes. That's how I became involved in Marion's case back in 2019. Take a listen to this.
6: Sally is as strong and as as just amazing as she is. She's just in this limbo land and has been for 20 years, which is, uh, I mean, not to get on my band, my big, you know, soapbox, but I just just think that in a civilised society such as ours, a woman shouldn't be able to just go missing like that. I mean, the rules are there for a reason. And if she's, she's, it just baffles me. If she's not been cited, then why is it that no one in law enforcement is looking for her? I just don't understand it.
2: Surely, you know, if the police did indeed um, speak to, you know, like it's not on the records, but say that the police did speak to her or who they believe was her at the time on the phone and she said that she wanted her records vetoed or no one to follow her. Isn't that the action, like coercive action as well?
6: Absolutely, and this this and this is where I think, you know, as Laura Richards from um, from the UK, she runs Paladin. Um, she's also on the Real Crime Profile um, podcast. She she as she said, it, the game needs to change. She's from a law enforcement background, Scotland Yard. The game needs to change. Because we can no longer assume that because you're talking to someone, you know, mostly women, that, um, you know, you just tick them off the list. They're okay. We've spoken to them. They're fine. And that's not actually the case. That may not actually be the case at all.
2: What's her name? I'll I'll, I'll look her up.
6: Laura Richards from Real Crime Profile. Yep.
2: Here she is.
6: Laura Richards. I'm a
8: criminal behavioural analyst former head of the Homicide Prevention Unit at New Scotland Yard, and I spearheaded law reform on uh, six occasions to better protect victims, and one of those law reforms was spearheading a law reform campaign to criminalise coercive control in the
2: UK. I guess that's a good place to start. Can you tell me about coercive control?
8: Yes, yeah, so coercive control is, is uh, at the very heart of domestic violence. And it's a pattern of behavior um, that perpetrators use in which they use intimidation or sexual coercion or isolation um, to try and control and dominate or exploit or deprive someone of their basic rights and resources. Uh, it's, It's much more dynamic about power and control and one individual trying to have the power and control over another and feeling entitled to have that control. And it it tends to be men who control women, although there are cases where, you know, same-sex, we see coercive control operate as well. But it's very much about domination and entrapment and subordination.
2: What are the tactics that are used to get this coercive control?
8: Well, there's all sorts of behaviours that can manifest But it it is a strategic pattern. So it's not something that just happens accidentally um, in a relationship. And there are lots of different things. So, you know, to start off with a relationship with with any abuser, you wouldn't have somebody who would physically hit somebody straight away because they wouldn't continue dating them. So it might be that there's a very intense courtship um, where there's love bombing, for example, where lots of gifts are... Given or where somebody monopolizes another person's time, where they groom them, where they have this real intensity and they groom and they can really uh, harness vulnerability. So sharing vulnerability with someone early on and the monopolizing of time—you know—that kind of bubble when you're first in a relationship, the honeymoon period, sometimes people call it. Um, You know, where you're together 24-7, well, when and if that happens, it means that you become isolated, so you're not doing all the other things that you would normally do. And, and of course, there's financial aspects as well, where someone might control economically. So there's lots of different aspects to coercion, and it's really tailor-made to a victim. So it's idiosyncratic to them, to their... Likes, their desires, their needs. And, and the, the abuser will find out all of these things early on and will mirror and become exactly what the victim wants them to be.
2: And Marion was a prime candidate for someone wanting to take advantage.
8: If, I mean, with all of my work, victimology is at the very heart of it. If you find out how someone has lived or been living, then it tends to uh, shine a light on what happened to them. And it leads you in certain directions. And and looking at Marion's, um, victimology, you know, she was at a stage in her life, you know, early 50s, where her world was her school and doing the the work that she's done. And lots of people reported upon that, how important her work was, but there were tensions there. Her love life, there were, there appears to be various tensions and relationship breakdowns. And that she was unhappy and that's vulnerability in and of itself. And someone's unhappy and looking for transition um when there's been a number of trigger factors. And so yes, the the looking for love aspect always renders someone vulnerable as well. You know, when you are looking for love, you tend to tell people far more than what you would do normally, particularly if it's online or you meet someone, you know, in a unconventional way. Um, but even if you meet them in a conventional way, if you're really looking for a match, you will tend to tell and share far more information. And and I believe looking and, and, uh, at Marion's case and listening to Beidre, her sister, various other people that you've interviewed, Sally, of course, it would appear that Marion was very prone to, the, to falling in love quickly and having this kind of whirlwind relationship. And if we take Ray as an example, you know, within... Weeks of dating, he moved in with her. Well, the whirlwind nature of a relationship and how quickly someone wants to move things on, to me, is always a risk factor because it means that you don't really know that person, but you're willing to trust them, which talks to naivety. And that kind of person can be very easily exploited by those who have ill intent and who are exploitative and manipulative and deceptive, and therefore marrying. I believe, from her victimology and everything I've heard and what, what you've uncovered, um, appeared to be vulnerable at the point that that she packed her house up, she resigned from her job, and actually even saying that, you know, when you have somebody who's been so structured in their life, and I mean that she had a, a an eight to four job of going into a school, um, teaching children was very good at what she did, by most people's accounts. She also had a house that was immaculate, which shows and reflects that she liked order, and she liked to be in control of things. Well, you've got a transition period where she actually does the polar opposite of everything that she's been doing thus far. She resigned from the job she loves. There's a question mark over over that. And she packs up a house, and she even doesn't take, you know, gifts that the mothers have, have pulled together to give her a couple of plaques and she decides that she's not going to take those with her. But she packs her house up and she then goes to a country, you know, for a year and goes off into the unknown. And that in itself, I mean, it's a very exciting opportunity for her, but I would imagine it was quite overwhelming as well. and You get vulnerability within that. So there are lots of shades of vulnerability, I, I believe, with, with Marion in particular.
2: As such, a hidden romance doesn't come as much of a surprise to Laura.
8: You never really know what's going on behind closed doors or in someone's life. And everybody has secrets, if you will. And that's not always sinister things, sort of secret rendezvous. Well, you know, that doesn't really surprise me. But I guess if Sally and um, Marion were so close, it may well have surprised Sally, but it sounds like she had a number of different relationships going on um, but who was the person really in her life that's the question was it the pilot was it was the pilot this individual who was in her car um, are they different people um, why would she hide him or why would she you know she become flustered about him That's another question uh, but there were certainly steps that she took It shows that she was an intelligent woman and she was smart. And the, the logistical planning of going away to the UK, changing her name, I think, is a very interesting departure from her structured life. And and even the name choice is interesting because if you're going to disappear yourself, choosing such a colourful name really fights um, the aim of trying to disappear yourself. Um, but there could well have been somebody who she felt that she was going on an adventure with, or. You know, and, and was excited about that, and wanted to keep parts of her life private.
2: Laura agrees. It's also important to find F. Rammekel in case there is a link.
8: Anyone along that timeline is important, and so it doesn't necessarily mean they're a person of you know of interest, which is what we would call it in the police. It, it's even one step before that but you're still trying to put those uh, the timeline together and work out when was she last seen alive and by
7: whom. I previously said that the timeline would be key. Particularly four months before Marion disappeared, that period of time would be crucial, and anyone she was having a relationship with would be of great interest to me. And so I was extremely curious about the MF Remakel development. Also, Sally said that she last spoke with Marion on August 1st, 1997, And between then and the 18th of October, Owen's birthday, no one heard of or saw Marion again. So if you know any different, particularly my UK listeners, please contact the Lady Vanishes podcast Facebook page or Missing Person Marion Barter Facebook page. The links are in the show notes. In the next episode, you'll hear much more about the M.F. Remacol development, which also links to the name Frederick de Hedeveray Willie Wooters and Rick Blum. And yes, that's all the same person and only a fraction of the names that he used. You'll also hear more about the coroner's inquest, which has now been running for two years and which included a six-month hiatus whilst the coroner, Teresa O'Sullivan, delayed the handing down of her findings in 2022 pending new information and witnesses. Some of those incredible witnesses included a number of 90-plus-year-old women who testified about meeting the man of many names and recounted a similar pattern of behaviour. Take a listen to one of the incredible
4: women. A familiar face pops up on the screen. It is 92-year-old Gelaine Dubois-Denlois. Jelaine is in Brussels and the interpreter is in Lismore. Both give their affirmation. It is 12.30am in Brussels. Given the late hour, it's no wonder she appears weary. At times, she trembles and her eyes water. This is hard for her. Coroner Teresa O'Sullivan thanks the witness for staying awake so late to give evidence. In reply, Jelaine says this.
3: I know but it is so important for me to bear witness.
4: Through the interpreter, Miss Dubois-Danlois tells the court she met Frederick de Hedevry in 2006, although later learned that he went by several other names as well. She says he responded to an ad she had placed in a newspaper.
3: I had asked for a handwritten letter which he sent, and it was a very nice letter with no spelling errors. And very interesting.
4: Their first meeting was in a cafe in Brussels in June 2006. And the last time she saw him was three months later, in September. Their friendship had quickly blossomed into romance. Because she knew he was staying in student accommodation, Jelaine invited Frederick de Hedivry to stay at her home. He accepted immediately, and they shared a bed.
3: But... He had said to me beforehand that it was abnormally frigid.
4: She says he told her he lived in Australia where he was a bank manager and was in Belgium to look for old coins as he was a collector. The court is told he invited Miss dubois Danois to get married at a resort in Bali and suggested they would later live in Australia. She agreed so long as she could visit her children and they could come to visit her.
3: I was fond of him, and I wanted to live with him in Australia.
4: But Frederick de Hedevry did not want Gelaine Dubois-Denlois to tell her children of their plans to marry.
3: Simply, he was saying, because it's more fun. It would be more practical to tell them once we were married. But that is exactly what I would not accept.
4: She insisted on telling her children, and they were very surprised and astonished. However, she said they didn't try to stop her because they loved her and wanted her to have freedom after their father's death. Ms Dubois-Denlois tells the court when she started making preparations to move to Australia, Frederick de Hedevery chose items of value around her house and put them into two trunks. He said he would have them shipped to Australia so she'd have them when she arrived, but she has not seen those items again. He also asked her to undergo particular medical examinations, an ultrasound of the liver and a sleep examination before she traveled to Australia. And he requested she put her house up for sale.
3: So he asked me to sell my house and then he asked me to give him the money so that he could open bank accounts in his bank, for my children. And I had four children, and that would be four separate bank accounts, so that when they visited me, they could find their very own money in their own bank account. He took advantage of the love I had for my children to steal my money.
7: Now, as you know, I'm all about patterns of behaviour, and there's much more to come. Until next time. Be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio.